Hello and welcome to Dynasty As They Wanna Be, a podcast where we drill into every episode of the iconic 1980s television series, Dynasty. I'm your host, Derek J. Lang, and with me is my co-host, Kyler K. Jafari. Heidi ho <laughs> How's it going? I mean, pretty good. How do you feel? I feel great, mostly because in front of me, I have a delicious cocktail in which you've prepared for us to consume while we record the podcast this week. Well, I think in a weird way, this turns out to be a classic cocktail, but I don't think anybody ever knew it, and I know we didn't. Well, every time we have one of these cocktails, and we're being intentionally obscure, but it always reminds me of the first time that we went to Florence, Italy, and you took me to this crazy underground nightclub. Well, this was like, you know, the thing is, this was before you could just look things up on your phone, right? So you had to just kind of do the research and really like write a master's thesis to figure out like, where do you go for nightlife in Florence, Italy? Right, you weren't just looking up on Yelp where to go in Florence, Italy exactly. for and, nightlife. You know, there's, there's no like four and a half star reviews of anything at that time. We, we go to this place and I think it was like a, a dark street. We, we get shaken down. For a membership, right? Well, right. So when we went into the club, we thought like, okay, maybe you, you would have to pay a cover or whatever. You just enter in like a normal, like a bar situation. But we had to pay. Is, is this like how they do things in Italy? <laughs> or like, is this like that, how they're always on strike? They also like charge <laughs> a membership fee to go to a club? Like, Yeah. So we had to become members of this club. But with that, we got a drink ticket or like two drink tickets. And then we were allowed to go. I think it has something to do with the the laws. The I'm li- sure. I'm sure this was like some like you know backroom workaround or something. But but anyway, we go in immediately. I'm struck because they're playing like all '90s, like club music, late '90s. Like yeah, it's like Salt and Pepper and like <laughs> hip hop. You the wish 90s. it wasn't even that good. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was really random music. And I, I swear was to like, God, my neck, my back was being played there. I'm not even making that up. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, this place has got a point of view. I like it. And the other thing that struck me is that everybody was drinking cocktails instead of wine. Now, if anybody listening has been to Italy, you know, they're they're not really big on cocktails. They mostly just drink wine and and beer sometimes. Well, I was intrigued because here we are in this room. It's bumping, right? And it's a lot of young folks and it's a little trashy and everybody sidled up at the bar. And I'm like, what is everybody so excited about at the bar? You know, well, that's what I said. Well, and you, it wasn't wine. This was not no, Aperol no. spritzes. You know? Yeah, it wasn't Aperol spritzes and it wasn't wine. And I know, you know, a little bit of Italian. And so I kept goading you. Hey, like, let's go order a drink. But like, what are all these things that people are drinking? And you kind of went up to the bar and you were looking around and you were being well, very you know, methodical like, and I, very analytical. I speak enough Italian to get into trouble, but like, let me just watch what's going on. What is everybody? Because clearly everybody was on the same drink. Yeah. I so, don't know what exactly it was. But I'm watching you, watching everybody else. And I don't really know a lick of Italian besides like, you know, all the pastas. And finally, I see kind of a light bulb go on over your head, and you're like... Well, I'm watching. I'm watching what's going on, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's a bottle of liquor. Uh There's another bottle of liquor. Oh, that's interesting. So already we have like two 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 high-octane ingredients 
Then we have a third and a fourth. Okay, and the then bingo then card is getting full. Oh, everything is clear and it's all well. You know, like, of course, there's like, there's no boutique uh, vodka or tequila going into these drinks. And then the, the splash of Coke comes at the end. And it was like, you know, Mama Mia. <laughs> Everybody's fucking drinking Long Island teas. At this like crazy club in the middle of like you know nowhere in Florence at three in the morning, it was it was kind of a revelation. Yeah, so all of these like hot young Italians at this club were all drinking Long Island iced teas, and so we did as the Romans do, or in this case as the Florins do, and we ordered Florentines. And we ordered Long Island iced teas. And uh, then we went upstairs and played the Italian version of um, Monopoly, Millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, and everybody was smoking Marlboros. That's that's the other thing. Yeah. So that was a good time. I wonder if Monte Carlo is still there. We'll, we'll have to go back one day. Well, you can't go back. So, you know. Yeah. It's, it's fun to, to visit in your mind anyway. But anyway, so thank you for making Long Island Iced Teas for this recording. So it should be a really fun one because we're going to be I smashed mean, by the end of here's it. Here's the thing. As much as it's considered a trash garbage drink, you can, you know, make a, a pretty damn tasty Long Island tea if you do it the right way. So just just a touch of sugar and a touch of lemon juice is all you need. And, and you know, the splash of Coke for color makes it look like tea. You know, it's it's actually kind of a good drink. Yeah, I feel like it probably was invented to just get wasted. But I yeah. think if you make it properly, it can actually be, I don't want to say elevated, but it can be like a classic cocktail that's good for certain occasions. I mean, like I'm not going to die on that hill to make this a classic cocktail because nobody's ever going to buy that story. But <laughs> I think people are, are missing out if they've never had a truly good Long Island tea. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think it's good for specific occasions only, like going to Italian discotheques and recording podcasts about 1980s television shows. I'm really excited to talk about this episode. It was so refreshing to me. So let's take a break and then we'll get into it. Absolutely. Welcome back. Okay, so I can't wait to dive totally into this dinner party, which actually takes up most of the episode. But before it kicks off, there's a little bit of business to take care of. First up, we have Crystal after last week's debacle where she's not able to control the staff and they're going completely AWOL on her. She's sort of using this dinner party as an excuse to assert her power right well uh, yeah she's definitely having like an upstairs downstairs fiasco you know uh and she's she's trying her hand at being a woman of wealth trying to manage the staff and it's all taken uh in these like sort of like bitchy laser eye moments with the uh I guess he's called a major domo, but I guess we would just call that a butler these days. I don't know. Yeah, Joseph is a butler. He's a house manager. But most importantly, he's the head bitch in charge, or I'm sure that's how he likes to think of it. And so he has this power struggle with Crystal, and it plays out before this dinner party all over the kitchen. What did you think about well, I, Crystal's I think, struggles? Well, I think the setup is like kind of ridiculous. I mean, did you notice like Blake Carrington is basically planning a dinner party for the guests of honor that he has not even invited yet 
in the previous episode, right? We have pretty much an idea of the guest list. Obviously, his family will be there. His BFFs, the Colbys, are going to be there. And then he's invited Matthew Blaisdell and Walter Lankersham because this is all sort of a way to get at the leases for the oil rigs Which that they doesn't own. this make you question, like, I mean, maybe this is sort of on the nose, but, you know, wealthy people who are friends with each other and are they really because, like, the way that they are using each other for business deals is essentially kind of not very friendly. I don't know, but and that gets played out in the dinner party. That's a big dynamic. But yeah, so Crystal's in full preparation mode for this dinner party. Part of that is she's meeting with this guy that I guess is a fashion designer or a personal shopper, and he's presenting her with all of these different gown options. Like, I mean, of all the things we're asked to believe, I think this this was probably the biggest stretch. I mean, this guy just like, what does he do? He goes to mansions all across America and sells fashions by, you know, whoever. I don't know. Like, it's... it's. Like, I'm not going to get into it here, but that is a real job. I met this French guy in New York once at a bar, and that was his job. He was on staff was of a very job? rich family okay. and he came would come to America and buy a bunch of clothes for them for different seasons and that's basically what this guy was doing so i think it is a real job i mean maybe yeah, but, but this is like 1982 right one. So, so maybe that could happen now i don't know but it's funny because like you know she's she can't settle into being in the role of the wife of a wealthy captain of industry. Crystal is definitely uncomfortable with this situation, not because the gowns are ugly or anything. I actually think the sketches that this guy's presenting her are really beautiful, but because of the cost, no, I thought they were nice. I mean, there's sort of like the idea of like, oh, if, if we wanted to have a fashion designer on a TV show. So she's uncomfortable because of the cost. And he says that this wardrobe is going to cost about 75K, which I, my mouth was a Inflation slightly adjusted, ajar. that's about $200,000 in today money. Yeah. Isn't that a lot of money to spend on gowns for a season? I mean, it's not when you have like oil rigs gushing money all day long. I guess so. Anyway, after that, we get a really great scene between Crystal and Fallon, where Fallon basically lays out how you're supposed to act in times of crisis when you're a rich person. And at first, Crystal seems like hesitant to listen to her, but Fallon is spitting wisdom once again. You've got some things to learn about how rich people function, particularly in times of crisis. And you're going to teach me those things? Some of them, not all of them. Just enough to keep you from making a total fool of yourself. Well, I think this is an interesting scene. I, I know you have your take on it. Um, I like Pamela Sue Martin normally. I think this is actually some hammier acting. But then like Linda Evans, who I'm not normally buying into, is totally delivering this like sympathetic character. Like she's becoming like a rounded character in, yeah. in this scene. So I'm I'm kind of appreciating the the trade-off because normally I'm like it's like oh I'm all about the Fallon character but here like Linda Evans is like serving up like what we like. I don't know. I, I think it's interesting anyway. Yeah, I'm seeing the arc. Linda Evans is definitely showing us that Crystal is trying to adapt 
to this new world that she she's in. And part of that is confiding in Fallon that she wants to know what to do and more importantly, what to wear. So Fallon tells her to throw out her what not to wear. <laughs> Fallon tells her to throw out her old rags and go back downstairs and order up that new wardrobe. <laughs> Divide honey. it up among the servants. <laughs> I know. That was so That's funny. That's kind of a shitty thing to say. What should I do? Well, call Joseph up here first and tell him to take those things downstairs and divide them up among the servants. And then go see James Beaumont. He's still waiting for you in the library. Do I thank you for this? No, it's not a gift. Could you imagine just being like one of those middle-aged ladies and then here comes like a pleated chiffon gown that you're like, where would they wear it? last season's color. (laughs) So yeah, so then we move downstairs to the kitchen and Crystal starts button heads with that big bitchy butler, Joseph. I love the uh, Howard's End, Downton Abbey, like upstairs, downstairs, you know servants versus the masters kind of thing that she's doing and again she's like she's trying to get into that role and she just can't and i love like there's like these like campy moments where like she just like runs away from the situation after she's like had her argument with you know the butler and she has to like bite her thumb and like she just can't it's too much you know (laughs) like it's hard being rich and running a household you know (laughs) like Yeah, but unlike the last episode, she really tries to assert her authority with Joseph. So she goes over the seating arrangements and Matthew Blaisdell, who's (laughs) coming. Show me the receipts. I want to know who's sitting where. (laughs) Yeah. And Joseph tries to blow her off. He's like, "Mm, don't worry about this, madam. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? He's super pissed. He's like, this is my job. This is what I do. Who are you to come in here and tell me? how to rearrange people at the dinner table. Yeah. And she straight up threatens him saying that she will give him a really bad recommendation when he ever tries to go get another job. This is what we call rich people problems, right? I mean, like, isn't that the whole show? Does anybody really care about who's sitting where at the dinner table? I mean, well, I think it's important a, because crystal has this relationship with Matthew Blaisdell and B, she knows that they're, leases on these oil rigs is a possible salvation for Carrington oil, which is at this crossroads. Since I know, all the but oil is like boring up. plot stuff. Like, and we're not here for that. I mean, okay. Well, some of us are here for the plot and we're not here just for the fashions, but she wins, I think because she threatens him. The other staff sees. So it's definitely a power play. So I love that they're just learning. sort of like hubbubbing and rhubarbing in the background, like with the pastry bag <laughs> and like, and then they like look away, like while the camera's watching, you know, it's like this like really corny, like directorial style. Well, and then it ends with the total baller move where she takes Joseph's clipboard and drops it in the flower and it creates a big smoke cloud. And then she rushes out down the hallway. And just when you think she's going to strike a pose and be completely a powerful B-I-T-C-H, she kind of falters and she's like... No, she gets on a fainting couch and almost cries. I know, because it's really hard for her to be that... This know. is what I'm saying. It's 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 tough work, you know? These are hard-fought battles. Yeah, and I think Linda Evans is great in showing the struggle and trying to 
survive in this cutthroat world. She hasn't even gone world. into you know which crystal pattern is being served at the dinner party tonight, or oh god, our, our cucumber sandwich is first or last. You know, it's you know it it, it could get even crazier from there. So yeah, I, I feel I feel her pain. Oh, I do too. Unfortunately, we don't get to see most of the actual dinner at the dinner party. We kind I think of that's go... actually rather telling, right? It's not really about the food, and we all know that. Anyway, we kind of go into the end of dinner, and there's all sorts of different dynamics going on in in this dinner party. It kind of starts with Blake telling everybody to make their way into the study, the library. You keep doing that. It's just a library, but <laughs> no, no, but it's not the library. The other, I don't. Are, do they even refer to that room by any name? I don't think they do. But this is why I love dinner parties in any kind of filmic or TV moment because they are like a great way to bring together characters that don't normally interact. At least, yeah. at least in a you know in a in a narrative form anyway. Um, so you, yeah, yeah, you get like the Walter Lankersham and. Uh, Matthew Blaisdell character sitting at the table with, you know, uh, Cecil Colby, who's this like total psychopath who owns the, you know, the other oil company that's part of the storyline. And so like, you know, like you wouldn't normally have these people in a room together. Mm -hmm. I also like Dinner Party. This this episode does a good job of doing this where it's sort of like it all happens in the moment. Yeah, the whole second half of the episode is mostly in real time. And we're just going in and out of these different conversations that different groups of people are having. One of them is Walter Lankersham is totally working the room. And also it seems like working the bar because he's drunk and laughing well and i mean his business is drilling for oil so he's he knows where the uh the liquid gold is going to be in the room right um I, I i don't know like and and he he kind of reads the room and really does know uh how to play the game and he's just unfortunately in a position he doesn't have like a big stake you know that's kind of like his only fallback in, in this whole dinner party scenario yeah well and matthew blaisdell is sort of the opposite he doesn't seem interested in working the oh, room right. at he's got all ethics. yes yeah very ethical and very boring at a party i wouldn't invite him to my dinner party having watched this one. Oh, i don't know i mean he's fine but i, th I think he's just yeah he's got hang-ups and clearly blake carrington it's it's a problem for him well the most interesting thing about matthew blaisdell attending this dinner party is that he brought Claudia Blaisdell, formal mental patient, with him as his date. Well, I always, I always like these like scenes in the background where she's just sort of like simpering around, you know, behind a plant or a door. Like, yeah, you kind of don't realize that she's there. She's I mean, a specter. Here's the thing: like, I think she's like a, a totally sympathetic character, and yet she hasn't really done much yet, other than you know, in the previous episodes, like she's obviously. What are you got, talking about? She drove a car in the last. episode episode and it was a big damn deal <laughs> i mean she parallel parks in, in less than two turns of the wheel it was remarkable that she even came because matthew and claudia before the party had a discussion that maybe she shouldn't come because it might be too overwhelming for her giving her mental state to be in a fancy schmancy dinner party like this but she has well remember what happened when she just tried to clear the dishes and bake a cake <laughs> i know so imagine putting on formal wear and having to drink brandy in the study with the millionaires of uh denver but 
she seems like she's got most of a handle on it, but she has a little bit of a breakdown where she kind of looks around the room. And we've all had that moment where we're at a party and you're feeling anxious because you don't know anybody well, or you feel I mean, inadequate. I know if, if I'm in like some rich person's mansion, I'm the first thing I'm doing is like, I'm going to snoop around and go, <laughs> I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to the Butler's pantry. It's, it's going to be a free for all. And I love that. She just like sneaks off into the library. Right. Yeah. Do we agree that that's what this room is? We agree. And, that's where they, they um, definitely met. And of of course, like Stephen is there having like his little sulk by the fireplace with leather bound volumes. I don't know. I feel like there's like this whole thing. The Shapiro's. I'm not really sure what the thinking was, but they have this like sense for like you know liberal arts majors that uh, are head cases and uh, sort of go into these like off the wall narrative things on the side. And so here, like she's connecting with steven you know and he's like reading her some emily dickinson by the fireplace you know maybe sounds que romantico but like when you see it in the scene though it's like would you guys just hook up already i mean but like clearly that's not what these two characters are i like the fact that they're connecting in a way that's not necessarily sexual it's not sex and it's not money and I, i actually i think it's this is one of my favorite plot lines i should recuse myself to some degree but this is one of my favorite storylines from the whole thing. But no, I like the fact that they're building a connection that doesn't have anything to do with sex or money. They seem they seem to vibe with each other on a sort of metaphysical level, and I really love that. There's like this sort of like they're both broken, you know, and so that's why they connect, which I think today that's not like an acceptable device but i think in in the context of what's happening here and at this time like it's it's kind of touching which well, I, I know is like a little bit ridiculous but yeah well steven needs somebody on his side so we kind of see at the beginning of the episode that he's now working for walter lankersham and matthew blaisdell in a very butch kind of pulling it's, ropes it's and too much dirty it's campy it's ymca uh, you know it's he's like off the cover of that album or something but i uh, loved it i'm glad that i, he's I also really love his dad in. showing up in like the limo with more makeup on than anybody else in the oil field talking about oh this is man's work and it's like yeah but you're wearing lipstick and and foundation like, <laughs> i mean i like john Forsyth. he's a great actor but yeah i mean steven continues to not be able to catch a break so he's got this job now where he's working on the oil field and his dad is still kind of shading him and giving him side eye. I don't, they don't really explain it, but Steven is not at the dinner party. He's, that's why he's in the library. He's kind of sulking away. I probably didn't want to go. He's, he kind of alludes to the fact that he's been to a bunch of these things and they're a snooze fest. But, you know, reading uh, Tolstoy by the fire is not a snooze fest. Especially not when Claudia Blaisdell graces us with her presence. And I think it's kind of cute. He ends up giving her the Emily Dickinson book. I'm sure he's got like 90 copies of it. It's a reprint. It's not a first edition. (laughs) So Stephen's not at the dinner party, but Fallon is definitely in full force at the dinner party. And she's got her date, Jeff Colby, with her, which in the last episode we learned that she's promised his uncle that she would marry him. I think she got in over her head. Yeah. I still haven't figured out why she was originally messing around with Cecil Colby, but at this point it's, you know, it's pretty clear like 
the only way she's going to save daddy is to, you know, give it up for Cecil. So, yeah, we do get a little moment where Cecil tries to help out Blake Carrington basically with a blank check, which is a result of Fallon agreeing to marry Jeff to make Cecil Colby happy. Well, I like that, though, because like, you know, Blake is like, oh, that was too easy. You know, it can't be real because I didn't have to fight for it. I got this blank check without even an argument. Yeah, you maybe know. he'll get to the bottom of it. But meanwhile, we've got Fallon trying to deal with Jeff as much as possible. And he's just like a little puppy dog following her around the party. And he just wants to talk about young Republican crap. And she just wants Junior to, League. And Junior League. And she just wants to have a good time. Yeah, I, I, well, you know, it's the 80s, right? We're trying to play on these, like, uh, all, the, all the movies at the time had this, like, high school you know romance kind of thing but like yeah i like like how the the young woman is actually you know the the person in charge of that situation or is she because she's like she's like a marionette you know right well she's pulled by cecil colby well she's definitely playing with him and testing his spontaneity she suggests that they ditch the party get on the private jet and head to new orleans to go to bourbon street which sounds like such an amazing idea in the same way that like blake is complaining that the uh the blank check came too easily i think she's just like smooching jeff at the bar you know, she like made, does this about face and it's like, it's very clear. Like she's just going through the motions, but Jeff's not questioning it. You know, he's not, he's not because well, like he's Blake. a moron. Well, he is. Yes. He's a total himbo. By the way, I, I want to go on a jet plane to Bourbon Street in 1982. Same. If I was at that party and I overheard her coming up with this plan to get yeah, on the I'd private be like, Screw jet. this. Let's go. I'd be like, hey, honey, I'm ready. I'm down. Let's go. I've got my passport. Let's yeah. do it. <sighs> yeah. So she's clearly bored by Jeff and then decides to spice things up with a little marijuana. Marijuana. Yeah. Well, that's grass. To be exact. I suppose somebody sees it. Don't worry. I've got enough for everybody. Fallon, you could get arrested for fooling around with that stuff. I bought it from a starving seminary student, so you'll be supporting a good cause. Fallon, scientific studies have proved it confuses the thought process, absolutely destroys the memory. So far, you don't have anything to remember. But well, we can work on that. I mean, is that supposed to be like revolutionary at this time? Like the way smoking that, grass on TV? <laughs> I guess it was because the way that Jeff reacts, it's like she started doing a bunch of meth or something. He's so well. Shook. He's a young Republican, junior league, and all that. So yeah, but weed in '81. He's, he's who he's cares by all of all of her jointery yeah, yeah very shook but man that pamela sue martin she knows how to smoke it yeah you, up. Can, you can tell she's worked that once or twice before yeah she's definitely had experience with the mary jane and uh john james but, as jeff colby plays it up in a fun sort of comical way and ends up taking a toke 
and acts like he's done a line oh, of it's, coke. It's like the hammiest acting. But I like this because you have this this Garden of Eden setup where Jeff and Fallon. How could you? Forget? I like this because you have this like great Garden of Eden setup where Jeff and Fallon are going into you know this this very like paradisal garden setting behind the house after dinner and you know like she's introducing the pot you know it's like this this is the apple of knowledge or something yes yes Um, yes but then like later you get uh crystal and matthew come out to the same locale and there's this great artsy scene where there's like the statue of the boy and girl behind them it's like set in the middle so it has to be on purpose like they had to have blocked the shot for a reason and again they're in the garden of eden arguing about love and lies and truth yeah crystal comes from what seems like a very genuine place trying to convince matthew to team up with blake carrington and that way they can make money then he insinuates that crystal is a lady of the evening. That's a little too much for that's that's a bridge too far for me even. And like I I love to read everything into everything, but like yeah, that was nasty. It was a clutch the pearls moment because up until this point Matthew Blaisdell has been nothing but a sweetie right. pie. And like frankly Crystal's like she's not, you know, anything for anything. Like she's not whoring out her friends and no bringing girls to blake and these kinds of things yeah that's that's what he says he's like do you find (laughs) prostitutes for the out of town business guests that come in like she's some sort of heidi fleiss character well but again like we're we're in this situation where she's supposed to be running the house and is she running a brothel no and for him to suggest that is so fucking rude is this what he's got you doing for him do you know what this kind of work is called, Crystal? No. Tell me. Well, I know you're married to him, but I didn't think you'd do this, that you'd try to buy me for him. Is it also your job to supply women for all out-of-town executives? I never realized you hated me so. I, I don't know. It's it, it was a little hard to swallow. I, I don't know. It was... It was problematic for me. And then the craziest thing is after he accuses her of engaging in prostitutional acts, that he confesses he still loves her? Yeah. I mean, I feel like at this point, they're just sort of rehashing their old before she got married conversation where she's like, oh, well, this isn't going to work and I'm marrying Blake. And so now here they are rehashing this again in the Garden of Eden. It's like this like setting where everything is supposed to be heavenly and the beginning of everything and it's totally not you know like it's it's undermining all of those yeah i hadn't really made comparisons to the garden of eden but i think that's a pretty apt well that's just comparison. my own read on it i mean i you know i'm probably overthinking it after matthew blaisdell confesses that he still loves crystal then he goes in and confronts walter lankersham about making deals with some of the other party attendees and then tries to like retract the business deals, and it's like, uh, 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 honey, that's this, not how it works. At this point, like, as much as I like Matthew's character, he's starting to piss me off because he's basically going around trying to undermine everybody's business deal. And it's like, this is dynasty. I want the business deals to happen. 
Because without those business deals, like nothing else is going to happen. So yeah, I don't know what happened with Matthew Blaisdell, but he's acting like a complete dumbass in this episode. Well, no, I, I think he's supposed to be like acting with conviction and moral, you know, fortitude, which is fine. But that's uh, of another time period. You know, this is the '80s, baby. So yeah, we don't need morals and ethics in the Carrington yeah. Mansion. We want gowns and underhanded shadiness. Right. And everybody is kind of upset with him. Uh, Blake even tells him, you need to get the fuck out of here with that. And Walter Lankersham storms off, pissed off as well. The only person that's sort of left on his side is uh, his wife, Claudia Blaisdell. Which, you know, I like that about her. She's there to support. But yeah, he can't even get the boardroom asshole on his side or the colorful Mark Twain character actor. Like either... Neither side of the spectrum is, is is in agreement with his values and morals and ethics here. Yeah, know? if he wants to survive in Denver, he's going to have to start playing <laughs> that game. And, and get a snowplow. So everything is interrupted when Joseph the bitchy butler comes over to Crystal and says something is going down and her attention it is needed. It requires a mistress of the house. <laughs> yes. Which again is like, are you running a brothel? I mean, like what? Yeah. Well, what are what are things that would only require a mistress of the house and not the master of well, the house? Well, I, I don't know. I took the point to be that, you know, there's there's a naked lady in the pool, essentially, and only women can see naked ladies, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So we go outside to the pool where Fallon and Jeff Colby are going skinny dipping, although not totally. Right. It's fine for, for Crystal to go see Jeff naked in the pool, but not Fallon. Well, now I like. freeze framed it. He was not actually naked. I believe he was wearing briefs. So maybe Fallon was actually fully Through nude. Yeah, it, could, it, it looked like Fruit of the Loom. Yeah. But um, they... Well, she wasn't wearing no panties because you saw them on the poolside. And the pantyhose. And the pantyhose. And a heel. I love panties and pantyhose. And a nice cone heel sandal, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was like everything from 1982 all, all in one. She on took it all off and got in that pool high as a kite. Yeah, and that was like my favorite moment of the Garden of Eden metaphor because... They just like they run off at the end, you know, like people banished from the garden. Crystal seems super pissed and she threatens Fallon that she's going to go tell daddy. And that's enough to get Fallon and Jeff Colby out of the pool and wrapped up in big plush yellow towels. But Fallon is not leaving without a parting shot. She reveals to Crystal that she heard everything that Matthew Blaisdell was saying to her, especially that he still loves her. Well, yeah, the sort of the uh, the denouement to this like Garden of Eden metaphor, they come out from behind the bushes after Crystal and Matthew have confessed whatever they've confessed to each other about their prior relationship. And it's like, ooh, ha, ha. Like, now we know all the secrets. And yes, now she's here. Uh, Fallon is reading uh, Crystal on all of this hypocrisy. But again, like, you're you're asked to question, like, is that really hypocrisy? Well, yeah, no. And Fallon acts like she has her number. And I don't really interpret really. it in that way. Because it was Matthew saying that he loved her. Crystal didn't say, oh, I still love you, too. So to me, I mean, we'll see how well, it plays out, but I don't think Fallon is rocking the world. Fallon and Jeff are peeking from behind the bushes in the Garden of Eden after they've toked up, you know, and 
and here she is. She thinks she's going to call out Crystal. Oh, you think maybe she was just high and she wasn't on her A game? That wasn't where I was going with that, but maybe, yeah, that's got something maybe to do with it. I yeah, I mean, I, you know. Uh, maybe the apple brings knowledge, but the doobie brings delusion. <laughs> I yeah, I don't, I was not quaking in my boots. I certainly don't think Crystal was either. And again, we end the episode with to be continued dot, dot, dot. And I swore that it ended by this episode, but it continues to be continued. And you know what? This was not deserved of the to be continued no. dot, dot, dot title card. At this point, I feel like every damn episode is going to be end with to be continued dot, dot, dot. I swore that ended like after a f- the first couple episodes. I don't know why this continues. Well, I hope you weren't swearing on these Long Island iced teas, which doesn't matter because I'm finished with mine. I think we should take a break and give our looks of the week. And we're back. We had a lot of evening gown looks from a lot of characters, a lot of men in tuxedos this week. I think this was an excellent episode for fashion. I think we're building, we're getting there, we're going towards what we all know and love about Dynasty. Kyler, what was well, your I mean, let's, favorite look of the week? Let's acknowledge it's a little bit of a stretch. I mean, at least we have evening wear. That's always a, a dial up, right? I, I hate to say this because I don't like it, but it is the look of the week. It's it's Claudia's white column dress. I totally agree. And we need to talk about it a little bit. I don't want to like overanalyze. Um, I don't want it to be my look of the week. I but don't it either. It was such a definitive look that it stood out from everything else in the episode. So describe what she was wearing. That's exactly my thing, though. I mean, we'll describe it in a moment, but that's exactly my thing. It stood out. I don't think it's a great look. I don't think it's a great dress, but, you know, it's not like what everybody else is wearing. Yeah. And I think that's on purpose. I I think whoever was doing wardrobe clearly understood something about this character, and and that was a choice. It's just sort of like in a weird, it's a classic column dress. But it's, you know, no shoulders. It's strictly across the boobs. It's barely held on by her nipples. Um, (laughs) I mean, I kept waiting for it to fall down. And I'm not even into that. But, you know, okay. And she's got, like, the the Hawaiian Massengill commercial, like, hairdo with flowers behind her ears going on. Yeah, there was a lot of influences going on here. So I felt this sort of, like, Greco-Roman thing. It looked like maybe she was some mistress of a queen. But then there was also this weird Hawaiian thing with, like, the flowers and the hair. And then there was this, like, 70s age of Aquarius with the... like a brace, a, bit. a bracelet that a, a goes up bit. her arm. I, I, that actually, that's the one thing I think is actually a good choice. Was that bracelet? I know this is ridiculous. That seems like, so <laughs> weird to me. Why would you wear a bracelet in the middle of your arm? Um, I think it's one of those like it's just it was just small enough that I got stuck there. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe it was too big and it kept falling off, so she just <laughs> shoved know, it up but... her left arm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wish there were more interesting clothes in this in this episode. But again, like 
This is before they really started dumping money into the costumes. Well, so. here's the thing. At the dinner party, everybody looked lovely. The extras were lovely. The men in the well, tuxedos, lovely. I, I think this is lovely. an indictment of the early 1980s, frankly, because like everybody's got money and taste, and they're wearing tuxedos and, and nice dresses. And like there's not, not really anything that exciting going on. You know? Yeah. Well, I liked Linda Evans wore a beautiful it's sort of velvety. It's not the 70s where everything was like psychedelic, and it's not the, the middle or late 80s where everything is like loud and bright and sharp you know yeah well i like linda evans was wearing like a black velvety gown with these diamonds that i Blake thought she Karen was wearing did. like a nighty. it was like a nighty with a what? long no yeah. it was like a beautiful like a little spaghetti strap nighty. like <laughs> no it was much heavier than a nighty. a nighty is like was it velvet are you sure about yeah, that? yeah there was something like velvety about it right. anyway it looked I'll, beautiful I'll but it just wasn't like a lurk like Claudia Blaisdell went all out and it also typified the fact that she was trying a little bit too hard because she's not a woman of means like most of the attendees at the party. And also well, she's a crazy that was, kook. That was kind of, yes. I think part of that was feeding into the character. Like how much of this was she could only afford to go to JC Penney's and buy the nicest dress in the, you know, the boutique rack for prom or whatever. Again, like I was saying a minute ago, like I just feel like the early 80s was like this weird moment. You know, they were just like, it was drapey, but not very shaped yet. And so it's hard to get a good look. And like, frankly, I think Claudia's dress is not great, but she's the most interesting, most interestingly costumed character uh, in this episode. Uh, you know, and what's interesting as Agreed. well, I didn't even think about this. She is Greco-Roman. She's doing this like sort of purity thing and she's supposedly like the most screwed up one out of the whole bunch, but she's just like reading Emily Dickinson with Stephen by the fire. Meanwhile, all this like nasty you know, underhanded business dealings are going on in in the garden. Yeah. By the way, I liked her belt. I think I think the belt was actually really good. The belt was the most interesting part <laughs> of the outfit. It had this like nice braided thing, and it like in you know it, it was like elongated, so it it fell down. It had like a nice drop. Yeah, and um, there was like a jewel sort of tangled yeah. up in the rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was the belt was the most interesting part for sure of the outfit. Well, that's great that we were in agreement. So let's take a break and we'll wrap things up. Well, that wraps up another edition of Dynasty as They Want to Be. Uh, thank you so much, Kyler, for joining me once again. You're so welcome. And I want to also thank DJ Jugo for creating our awesome theme song. Thank as you. Yeah. As well as the artist Lindsay Mound for designing our logo and the graphics for our site, which you can check out at nastypodcast.com. That's N-A-S-T-Y podcast.com. I've explained it a couple of times. I'm going to keep explaining it. Dynasty is like a sports term now. So we're just nasty, which is what we should be. As we want to be. Mm-hmm. And you can follow us on social media too, at Nasty Podcast on all the places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm posting some GIFs and some images and some fun things to keep it going in between episodes every week. Thanks so much for listening, you guys and gals. If you liked it, be sure to rate it. If you didn't, well, you shouldn't have listened till the end of the episode. We'll see you next week <laughs> for the next episode. I'm not really sure what's going to happen, where we're going to go from here. It's um, 
Everything seems sort of up in the well, air. You won't let me talk about the future, so. Yeah, well, I don't want spoilers, baby. So we'll see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thank you.